Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Here we go again on our own. Anyways, just thinking. I am. <laughs> um, well, we didn't do a podcast last week. Yeah. Yeah, we, we got sidetracked for something. I don't remember what. Uh, just some kvetching. <laughs> I yeah. think that's what they call it. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, and I gave you a heads up when we talked yesterday, that I wanted to talk about this group that you are teaching and your kind of new vocational venture. Yeah. Um, so I'm starting to work at uh, the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, which is owned by John Price and Leela Scott Price. And I'll be doing spiritual direction, spiritual formation, kind of, I'm about to start this really cool class that I'm excited about. I'm taking it in spiritual psychology. So I'm kind of weaving together this interest in psychology, spirituality, and creativity. And Leela Scott and I um, are co-facilitating three groups for women. And um, they're, they have three different themes. One is ongoing and two are time constraint, uh, have time constraints. Um, but Leela Scott's an acupuncturist and so knows this, this whole body system very well. So one of the classes we're doing is a holistic wellness group for women that integrates mind, body, soul, and relationship. So Mm -hmm. each week we'll just sort of do both a practice and then an open process group that will allow women to connect with these pieces of themselves and try and make a whole picture. Mm -hmm. And the second one is called the sacred feminine. This happens to be the one that probably is nestled deep in my heart (laughs) and Mm -hmm. it's each week it's an eight week thing and each week will bring forth a sort of female sage mystic teacher and do a quick sort of introduction to her and then talk about how she lives in our lives today and hopefully by the end each of the women who participate will bring their own sort of saint and and introduce a, their own saint into the group. So I want to ask two questions. One, yeah. uh, logistics. If somebody is interested in participating in this, what do mm-hmm. they do? I'll put How the do link. They contact. I'll put the link in our um, in the little write up of our podcast. But they contact the the Center for Healing Arts and Sciences and sign up. And the third mm-hmm. group doesn't start till March, but it's a a creativity group for it we're calling it dreams of creation so working with dreams and doing creative work with them either through writing collage art and you don't have to be an artist to do this group it's more just kind of playful and for fun so let's back up to the second group you said that you're going to talk about various women various women saints mystics and teachers and like Hildegard yeah yeah I can't give all of them away though. 
Why? Uh, I'm just kidding. So one of the ones for sure I'll be talking about is um, Lady Anne Conway. She's a female philosopher who I just love. And she really put a hole in Descartes' dualism and said, no, wait, maybe we're, it's not so separate. Maybe we're not so separate. Mm -hmm. And another one is Mary Magdalene, definitely Hildegard. Um, I'm just throwing off who I can remember. We've talked about uh, Rabia, one of our favorite Sufi mystics. Mm -hmm. um, I think we will start with sort of just the concept of Sophia in general, which is, you know, and also this concept of Tihon, which is the Hebrew word for abyss. And it is the, the constantly creating abyss and Catherine Keller's idea is that that is the feminine energy that has created the world mm -hmm. so you know kind of introducing this container and then individual people who who could be sages for us in this container Diatima is one she's the oracle who taught Socrates everything he knows mm -hmm. <laughs> so. and, and, and um, I, I just started reading I don't know how old this book is but I've been a fan of David Rico's ever since I met him decades ago. Um, and I met him not personally, but through a book that I ha just happened to buy um, in the Elliott Bay Bookstore in Seattle, Washington. I don't know mm -hmm. if you've ever been to that bookstore or not. I but think so. It, along with Book People in Austin and uh, maybe Blue Willow here in Houston, Brazos Bookstore not as big as either of those, any of those. But David Rico wrote a book called The Five Things You Cannot Change. He's a union analyst. He's also a deeply spiritual man. He's done a lot of work about around around male initiation. And in something I read, and, and by the way, I just think we should come clean with people who listen to this podcast. It's, before we went on to record today, we both talked about one of our Guilty sins or pleasures, if you want, is that we buy a lot more books than we read. Oh, heck yeah. You just mentioned inner work to me and I'm like, oh, I've never read it. Oh, it's already in my library, but I haven't opened it. <laughs> so it, it, anyway, when I'm in the process of doing my morning practice, part of it is reading. Mm -hmm. And I've been reading this book that I got to by reading another book who suggested this book. And that happened again this morning. I read something that suggested yet another book, which I bought. And so anyway, but in Shadow Dance, um, David Rico makes this statement about perennial wisdom. And he said that if, if, if all sentient life on earth were obliterated, which it seems we're heading in that direction, uh, and and then after a, a long period of evolution, sentient life evolves again, and consciousness comes back on the planet. That perennial wisdom would arrive, arise again. It would be the same perennial wisdom that we have now, but just in the form and shape that's appropriate for that time, and that it would not arise without Sophia. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. I mean, this kind of um, the thesis of that group is um, <laughs> feminine energy is the container. It is the all. And like we can either sort of accept that and get on board or we can keep denying it 
and keep mm-hmm. suppressing it. And honestly, I think that that is a cause for a lot of disruption, violence, ongoing division in our world. This It's not new to our time, but I think this suppression of that feminine wisdom and energy is a big cause of how this world unfolds. I agree. I agree yeah. completely. Yeah. There's this beautiful yep. image. Um, so Giotto is one of my favorite is my favorite pre-Renaissance artists. And there's this beautiful image. You know, he paints the whole sort of like life and ancestry of Christ. And um, I'm just wanting to point out that my dogs are wrestling heavily in the background. <laughs> talking about feminine energy they're both girls um they're like yeah we got to get this out anyways um there's this beautiful image of i believe it's mary's parents but it's their two faces in this locked into a kiss that would by all means be a very intimate kiss but it's such that their faces become one In other words, half of the face is his face and half of the face is her face and their faces are one. And it's just beautiful. And I think that that's it. Like if I had an image of what I could idealize our culture to look like, it would be that. The masculine and the feminine locked into this intimate dance. And, you know, these to this 12th century artists knew something of that. Jesus knew something of that, right? All of the great teachers knew something of that, you know? And somehow the culture, even in which these saints and mystics have arisen, within which they have arisen, the culture is still so unevolved that we're solving problems with bombs like we used to with sticks and stones yeah because that's the other side of our impulse energy is to you know i don't know a single person who if hit wouldn't have the impulse to hit back you know they and Mm -hmm. i i think that we're we are ourselves locked into this dance between impulse and consciousness right and and i think this you could say that that impulsive energy is masculine energy and to tame it we need the the consciousness the wisdom of the feminine right Mm -hmm. it's it's a both and 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 i i yeah i mean consciousness is such an interesting mystery because it would seem like so logical that we would go oh we don't always have to hit back but the impulse is so strong. Our lizard brain is so strong to want to kind of mm-hmm. like hit back, you know? Mm-hmm. 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 I think that Rico would say that the self is um, more masculine than feminine in everybody. I, I would think so because our culture is, right? right. And if, if culture raises us as much as our biology does, and some would say more, Mm-hmm. then we are products of the culture that raised us. And we've got to examine that culture pretty accurately. Yeah. yeah, what I meant to say is I think that Rico would say that the self is essentially feminine. The ego 
which drives us is masculine. Got it. Yeah. 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 I misspoke. Yeah. yeah. So we haven't realized the self yet on a kind of collective level. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And we're, yeah. Fr- we're frightened because it means um, we're, we're frightened because we have so many attachments mm-hmm. that cause us to fall for the illusion of control, which means that we are led by the ego. And those three things, attachment, control, and ego, I think are what are, are the big drivers in our culture. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, the insights about how to deal with this have been around since consciousness. Yeah. You know, it's in Hinduism and Buddhism and the Jesus narrative. Uh, we just don't appropriate it yeah well i think this word attachment trips people up a lot um in part because of what's really alive and kind of like parenting culture and pop culture around attachment theory right and we learn as parents that a strong attachment to our children leads to better outcomes right uh Mm -hmm. better social and emotional outcomes if we have a positive attachment or a secure attachment And so we get confused between relational attachment and attachment to outcomes, right? Like this relational attachment, if I were to distinguish between the two, can be fluid with the roller coaster of, let's say, raising children, right? If I have a secure attachment to my children, I'm going to go through each emotional lump with them in a way that wrestles safely, right? Mm -hmm. Without harming them, without harming myself, without um, subjugating, shaming, or punishing. I I can't say that I always do that successfully. (laughs) Um, But but in general, if we can get through the roller coasters of life, relationally, we end up with a positive attachment. But I think where, you know, we got to distinguish is that attachment to outcomes is like gripping, right? Like, gripping Mm -hmm. to the way that something needs to look versus holding it softly in our hands, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I think the use of the word attachment, because of course we're attached to the people we love. Of course we are. So one of the, one of the foundation foundational truths in perennial wisdom is that you can't hold on to anything. Right. Yeah. Oh, I'm, you know, I know I'm reminded of that daily with my three teenage boys, like I have zero control <laughs> over, I, I think I do, right? And, and, and my own battle with myself is that I think I have control when actually I don't, right? And right. so, you know, at, at this point in their lives and, and it changes over time. When they were little, I actually had quite a bit of control, right? I, I changed their diapers. I fed them on a schedule. I put them to sleep on a schedule. You know, that, that amounts to an illusion of control. What it really is, is just structure, right? It's just structure. Mm -hmm. Right. But but this idea that I think I still have control is what causes my own suffering. Right. I'm, I'm watching a family right now, uh, dealing with, um, and the father, the father is deceased. 
and the mother has developed a uh, a form of dementia. I'm not really clear about what the formal diagnosis is, but the adult children uh, have had to step in and deal with this um, woman and her their mother. And um, so one of the things that they have done is taken her car away from her because they they no longer think that she is capable of driving. Yeah. And what they did, and I didn't know about the service. Have you heard of Alto? I have not. Alto is a car rider service that you pay a monthly due to, like $15 a month. And it's like um, Uber for older people. Oh, that's fantastic. Fantastic. And so they've arranged for her to have access to this ride service whenever she wants to go <clears throat> to church. <clears throat> for example, she used to be very active in an Episcopal church. And so mm -hmm. she goes to, to that service, but she doesn't drive. So they, they have, as you would say, created a structure for mm -hmm. her that's more that's more safe but no i guess you can't control what people do yeah and that's heartbreaking right because sometimes people make choices that are unsafe for them and others well i'm thinking about you and your children i mean you know i've got two adult children and and i read years and years ago uh i think it was in the dear abby or ann landers mm -hmm. in the paper uh, who said that if you, the decision to have a child is the decision to open your heart and allow somebody to stomp on it. Oh yeah. It's to be broken in a million different ways. It's like that, the pot it, that I just sent you the image of, right? Like, right. Right. <laughs> the, 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 and to reference that, um, uh, this, the image of broken glass or broken shards in Japan, there's a type of pottery called kintsugi in which those shards are taken and put back together and then sealed with gold. So, every, you know, it's like I, if, that's actually, I'm kind of talking myself into this right now. In real time, I'm having a spiritual practice, which is to imagine my own self as that pot, is that every day motherhood can break my heart, but every day I have to seal it back together in order to begin again, right? Like I can't carry yesterday's heartbreak into today because I've got to show up, you know? <laughs> I, I just had this image, Holly, of my father. My father was a, among other things, he sold fine furniture. Interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. He had no patience for shoddy work in terms of, he was not a woodworker himself, but he, bought fine furniture that was made in the Carolinas and other places and then brought it to Tennessee and sold it. And people would come and see, for example, a solid cherry coffee table or a maple coffee table or something. And the price would be exorbitant. I mean, it was really expensive furniture. And somebody would say to him, oh, I couldn't ha possibly have a piece of furniture like that in my house. Not with my children. They would mar it up. And my father would say, yes, they will. And 50 years from now, those mars will be precious to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
It's so true. I, and that literally has happened to let like my dining room table. It's not an antique. It's not any kind of collectible. It's just a slab of wood on metal legs. But over time, over the 12 years, that 13 years that we have had it, it, you know, it's got like dents and scratches. There's like a whole piece of the finish that's peeled off because my son left one of those neon necklaces on it and cut it open. You know what I'm talking about? Those neon glowing mm -hmm. necklaces he left. Apparently that stuff is super toxic. It can wear the finish off of anything. <laughs> but, you know, so, and I look at that table and on days when my anxiety is high, I'm like, oh, I need a new table. But on days when my heart is resealed with gold, yeah. I go, oh, thank God for this table. Right? Yeah. Like all the times we've sat around it and, you know, laughed, cried, argued. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So back to your women's group. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> there are three of them. One, two, yeah. one is ongoing. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited for you about this. Yeah, I'm 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 hoping that they may. Um I'm hoping we get to do this work. It's kind of goes back to what we were saying. I really 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 think that tending to the feminine is so necessary. And we as women, those who identify as women don't even necessarily know how to do it. So it's like we're kind of on toddler legs, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're also exploring this as it needs to come forth. Um, it's not, it's not so, actually, let me rephrase it. It's not that we don't know how to do it. It's that there isn't a cultural milieu that says, here's a place to do it. I think somewhere in our instinct, we know how to do it. And we know that it needs doing the work of kind of embracing the feminine. But we don't have a wide network showing us how. Mm. And and I don't even say this as a way. I I it's so interesting. I was thinking about this. There have been women who have reacted to my um focusing on the sort of sacred feminine. There have been men who have reacted to it um who feel that you know they even use the word man-hater. This this couldn't be further from the truth, but it's so interesting to me that when we say the feminine needs our attention, love, and nurturing, that that automatically gets interpreted as to suppress the masculine in place of the masculine. It's kind of like the difference between saying all lives matter and Black lives matter, right? Like we need to tend to the fact that Black lives matter. We already know that all lives over here, namely white lives matter. We know this, you know, we know the masculine has a place in our culture and we need to tend to the feminine, but it's not, it's not a replacement theory. It's a, it's an and theory, hmm. you know? Well, I will share with you that, that when, um, I think the impetus for this has been the sexual scandals in in organized religion, the Roman mm -hmm. Catholic, Southern Baptist, and others um, as well, that created um, 
various trainings that are required for people who, for example, work as clergy in churches. And I know that in the United Methodist Church, there is a required training taken for, um, I don't I don't exactly know what it's called, but it's about gender sensitivity issues. And they, as part of this training, had put together a video of remarks that female clergy have heard over the years. And then they gave these remarks to male actors and had them read them into a camera so that we sat there and listened to 20 minutes, maybe 15, 20 minutes of remarks that women have actually heard from clergy that I mean, from parishioners that would never, ever, ever be said to a male, ever. Yeah. Like, you're not as pretty as our last preacher. <laughs> or I couldn't think of the sermon because I was thinking about what you might look like under your robe. <sighs> you know, yeah. it, it goes on and on. And guys say them without any awareness at all that there's, that they're out of line. Yeah. This is this is pervasive in our culture, right? In in our global culture. This two things that come up for me is um, you know, that uh is athletes, female athletes. And one in particular are the Williams sisters who are phenomenal tennis players. One of whom, yeah, like so one of whom has stepped away from tennis to kind of, she wants to be uh, a mother to another child. Like, so she, but she wrote in her kind of like goodbye to tennis piece. No man would ever have to consider choosing one over the other in their career. And, and, and there is not a professional athlete that's a male that has to choose their body as a carrier of children versus their body as an athlete, right? And and just that, and just you could see in her wrestling that like that I even have to wrestle with this is painful, right? Yeah, I, th- I think the story that's been documented about the women's soccer team. Oh my gosh, been... that's such a great story. Yeah, yeah. and important. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, it's, and I, and you know, like, even in our very normal working lives, we're not famous tennis players. Josh is very, has never been asked, how are you balancing family with work ever? He's never been asked that. Whereas I'm asked that all the time. And it's suggested that like, even my doing a PhD somehow was a sacrifice for my family. Josh has never been asked what? How does he balance family with work? Being a father with work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's never been asked. And he's a very engaged, active father. I think our generation of fathers is much more kind of active and engaged. And I think it's great. I think it's great for everyone. But he's never asked that question. And I I I I think it's fascinating to to hold that. And 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 in so many interview situations where either female athletes or female actors are interviewed, they're asked the most asinine questions. 
about either fashion, how they carry their body, how they do this and stay uh, present to their children and their families. But it's just not the same for men. Didn't you get told after you finished your PhD, now you can go back to being a mom? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, I don't think I ever stopped being a mom. Yeah. It was like a swirl of confusing things in my head. How do I respond to this? You well, what, was it one of them that you wanted to slap this person's face out? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. I had some biting retorts. Um, and then on the, you know, on the same hand, men are not to blame for this either because you also have inherited a context. Mm-hmm. And this context that we've inherited has has necessitated that we all learn new skills. You know, you it's not like you invented masculinity, Bill Curley, but, you know, you inherited it. You inherited right. some kind of version of it, right? You know, I'm, I I am cursed with this memory that I can remember things from when yeah, I'm two. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, I remember one time when I was no more than six years old, we were having we were putting Christmas decorations up in our home in Tennessee. And um, one of the bulbs on the Christmas tree lights that one of the bulbs on the strand didn't light up. And my mother said something about what she thought was wrong with it. And at six, I said, you don't know anything about this. You're a woman. Mm. Uh, at six. Yeah. You inherited something. That? Right. That's right. I got yeah. something that says that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. I remember when I was in seminary and this is just the way it plays out that, of course, all the all the people in seminary at the time were men training mm-hmm. for ministry or teaching. And if you got appointed to a church and you were married, that was considered to be a bonus because your wife clearly would be able to play the piano and teach primary Sunday school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what that just yeah. came with the territory. Yeah. It's, it's weird that what comes up is like, okay, let me couch this. There are women in our lives who love those roles. I love being a mom. I have loved being a teacher. These are both, assigned roles to women, right? This It is not to say that we can't love these roles, but you know the whole point of any women's movement was to provide choice. How do we want to engage? How do we want to be in the world? And the only other option that we know is like, well, I can either embrace these feminine roles or I can embrace these masculine roles. I can become more like the men or the masculine in my life, or I can be feminine. And I think there's got to be some third way, which is we can embrace the feminine and not necessarily take on the traditional roles of the female if they right. don't fit us, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I it's it's the assignment. It's the, it's the unquestioned assignment of certain roles that I think right. we need to question. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, change in the world one group at a time. 
<laughs> That's what the counterphobic six does. It it like acknowledges the fears and anxieties that are up, but is like, I'll lead the revolution. <laughs> Put me in front. <laughs> so I'm just teasing, but anyways, yeah, that's what I'm up to. Okay. Well, you ask about the course I'm beginning today. Yeah. Tell us about this, Jim Finley. <laughs> um, the Center for Action and Contemplation is offering an online course that begins today as we record this. I don't know when this will go up for airing. They will begin it again in late in the spring. I was told yesterday by somebody who decided not to take the course. The course is called Mystical Sobriety with Jim Finley. And um, I am, as you know, I love Jim Finley. I have benefited from his teaching, I, I just encourage people to go on YouTube and seek out a really good um, talk by Jim. You probably have to sort through to get them because not all YouTube audios are good. Um, but one of the great things about COVID for me was I discovered YouTube. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> I can go down YouTube rabbit holes in a second if I'm not careful. Yeah. But for example, Richard Orr's entire course on the Enneagram is available on YouTube for free. That's awesome. And um, so there are a lot of Jim Finley lectures and talks and things that he has done that are also on YouTube. And the people who watch him, I think, will fall in, in love with him. Finley was a cloistered monk for eight years with Thomas Merton as spiritual director. He left, became a Buddhist. He left that, became, oh, I didn't leave that. He also became a clinical psychologist and he is now a spiritual director, psychotherapist, but mostly spiritual director and on the faculty of the Center for Action and Contemplation. I have been 60 years now interested in the phrase of Jung about how all his patients resolve their personal difficulties by finding a religious solution to life's dilemma. Mm -hmm. And I've also been fascinated by Jung's unconscious or unaware, the role he played in the origin of AA. Huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, you're aware of that. Yeah. A lot of people are not aware of that, but, um, Jung's telling um, Bob, whatever his name was, that he um, couldn't help him, but that his problem was religious, sent um, Bill Wilson and this other guy into studying the theosophical tenets that came out of Britain, and they put together AA. Um, and the beginning thing of AA is that we decided to turn our life over to God as we understood God. But in the writings of AA, there is that thing about having a vital religious experience. And so I've just always been curious about what that is. And I've read about it, read about it, read about it, and read about it over the years. Um, no telling how many books I've read about this. And um, James Hollis says we're all addicts. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. uh, everybody in our culture. I, we have an addictive culture. Um, we're addicted to entertainment. Um, I think that our culture has an alcohol problem, but that's just me. Well, it's one of the uh, most advertised forms of entertainment, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. And um, anyway, so uh, there's course comes on mystical sobriety. It's about a five or six month course, and mm. start today with a Zoom call. I'm interested to see how many people have signed up for it and who they are and where they are. Yeah. And as you know, I first I had my timetable turned upside down. The um, time for the call, Zoom call is nine o'clock Pacific time today. And I thought that meant seven o'clock my time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I get turned around on these coastal times all the time. But it's actually yeah. 11 o'clock our time. So I had to push my schedule around to make 11 o'clock work but i'm really looking forward yeah. to it and anybody who's interested go on uh, cac.org uh website and look for it and it may not be too late to sign up if you're interested in doing that it's a commitment of time yeah several hours a week uh, but i'm looking forward to it yeah well one way that you could help your time problem is to get A clock. Oh my, isn't that something? <laughs> I'm not even going to say what it says. <laughs> well, there's ways around, uh, you know, knowing what time it is. Um, <laughs> Jesus has helped me, let me just say. <laughs> Well, I have a I have a iPad, and on my yeah. iPad is a clock app that you can have it show times various places in the world. Yeah, I got that fixed now. Yeah, so yeah, be, that's funny. Well, that'll be wonderful, and I'm excited to sort of hear what wisdom you gain from it. Uh, Jim Finley is my one of my favorite audios. You you gave me this actually was transforming trauma, and it was, it, it had a really powerful effect on me at a really important time in my life. And I, he's a gem. He's a real gem. Yeah. You know, there's something about people like Jim Finley that uh, you can, I, I can tell when I am in his presence that the work that he has put in in all the studying of the mystics and his spiritual practice and so forth, has had a payoff. It just exudes from him. Um, I, I remember one one day I finally got him on the telephone to ask him if he would come to Houston to be a part of an endowment speaker. And the way that he answered that that call was just to me so precious um i i'd been trying and trying and trying to get it we finally did talk in person on the phone and i said i'm calling to ask you if you would be willing to return to houston to um to spend a week in with us i know that you used to come because my spiritual teacher said you used to come and teach at the 
cynical. And so I was playing that card. Of, <laughs> I, know, I didn't say, would you come? Would you return? And he said, um, well, um, I'm going to end, I'm going to respond by saying yes, but probably no. <laughs> that is awesome. Yes, my heart wants to, but no, I can't. <laughs> I'm going to say yes. And then he said, my wife is, is dying and uh, I'm not making any trips away from her now. But when she passes, I, my schedule will be freed up. And I will be able to make other decisions. And it was not like, oh my God, I'll be glad when my wife dies. But it right. was just a recognition. Yeah. This is a process that I'm going through and there will be a shift after this. Yeah, yeah. And I don't I know where I'll that, land. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that after that, I think the death of his wife took quite a toll on him. And okay. I think then that he made a pretty public statement that he would not be traveling anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I understand that. I'm in that. I'm in that camp. I'm not traveling either. A hundred percent. I think that's um. It's an exhausting. It's exhausting. Yeah. And it's um. Thank goodness for technology, though, that allows us to access one another across great distances. I mean, that is a gift of technology. So. Yeah. 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 So I would I'll like be, to. Yeah. Go ahead. I will be zooming with people all over the country and maybe yeah. all over the world. Yeah. Interview. Yeah. 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 So you would I, like to I well I just am, I'd like to think that this the work that we do um that I think you are invested in that many are invested in that I am invested in helps us to become more human. Right. What I would like and I'm going to use this line on Sunday when I teach what I would like for people who come to hear me on Sunday or listen to this podcast is to be open to the to the possibility that they need to change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good place to land. Love you. All right. Love you too. <laughs> bye bye. Bye.